0: Today is April 5th, 2014, and this is episode 98. This program is intended for informational and educational purposes only. Cryptocurrency is a new field of study. Consult your local futurist, lawyer, and investment advisor before making any decisions whatsoever for yourself. Welcome to Let's Talk Bitcoin, a twice-weekly show about the ideas, people, and projects Building the digital economy and the future of money. My name is Adam B. Levine, and today we're in San Francisco for another installment from Coin Summit. On the first day of the event, I moderated a panel featuring Vitalik Buterin of the Ethereum Project, David Johnston of the MasterCoin Foundation, and Brian Snyder, an ambassador from the Next Project. We talk funding and founders, problems, and use cases. But first, in the wake of Gox, the world is reorganizing how we do and should do things. Recently, I spoke with Adam Stradling about ProvenlySolvent.com and their efforts towards improving the voluntary transparency of the people holding your private keys. Enjoy the show.
1: So we're here with uh, Adam Stradling from CoinForce, which is the largest, Uh, we're the largest fixed rate exchange in Chile, and we also operate in Mexico and Peru. So we're one of the largest traders of Bitcoin in Latin America.
0: So thanks for joining us today on Let's Talk Bitcoin. We're here at the Coin Summit conference, and I am doing something I very rarely do, which is a stand-up interview all by my lonesome. Uh, Adam, we were talking about uh, proof of solvency. Was that what you called it?
1: Yes. Uh, so, this is a, a project or an idea that we, we had a little while ago, and over the last eight to ten weeks, um, our team at Coinforce has started exploring it more in the form of a white paper that we're going to publish in two or three weeks that essentially allows you to use the cryptographic uh, functions in the protocol layers like Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies to prove the solvency of third-party businesses, potentially in, in real time. So uh, in practice, for me, what does that mean? Uh, obviously, Mt. Gox was a huge disaster. Um, we also just had Vicurex, which came out and said that they're going to be closing down and they lost customer funds. So there's a need in general for what I say call crypto audits in this space. Um, And we believe that because of the nature of cryptocurrencies, that these audits can be done with a higher degree of mathematical certainty, ease and automation using some of the core functionalities in, in the protocol. One of the things that's interesting about Bitcoin, of
0: course, is that you have the ability to have pseudonymous transparency, which is yeah. to say that you can have continuity of identity, but it's not necessarily your government-issued one. And how is this different than what we're doing right now? What is it exactly? Like you, you said you're writing a white paper. Can you give me the you know, 60-second simplification?
1: Yeah, sure. So um, kind of as a reaction to MT Gox, um, there has been discussions of how you might actually implement this. Um, so for example, uh, Greg Maxwell um, proposed using... Merkle trees. Uh, Peter Todd also proposed this too. Um, And there's a few programmers, Oliver Lalande on GitHub who's coding this up right now. So this white paper is going to really kind of look at the state of the art, look at uh, these uh, proposals that they've made, put them in one spot, and then also uh, put our own contributions into that. And I can tell you more in detail kind of some of our thoughts of how to improve on this process. Please. I think that, again, the transparency
0: thing has been a real problem because you can do it, and yet it hasn't been done.
1: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, So, uh, I mean... Again, like today, you had uh, you had Kraken publish an audit that was looked at by Stefan Thomas, and that was very interesting and great, and I love Kraken, huge fan. Um, but one of the criticisms that you could potentially make is that you know they handed their database over to Stefan Thomas, but unless you have a complete history of that database, all the trades that have ever been made, every single fiat. Deposit that's ever been made, and every single fiat withdrawal that's ever been made, you really can't reconstruct the entire history of user balances there. So I can hand you the database, and I can carve it up however I want. And you can say, oh great, you just gave me the database and now I see you have that many coins and you have that much cash, but how do we know that actually represents the liabilities that the users had when they last logged in their account?
0: So this is transparency throughout the entire process as opposed
1: to only at the audit step? Well, what you'd like to do is you'd like to have a complete history of the state changes of that database over time. So really, publishing your database as a Merkle tree which has been proposed by Greg Maxwell, although we think that you can use other accumulators, these are cryptographic tools, um, that will help you publish that information to get an entire history of that that database. And additionally, you need some type of user incentive for the users to come in and uh, uh, verify their liabilities. Right, and so we've actually conceptualized ways to provide that user incentive. So, even with the Merkle tree approach, they come in and they can see that their user balance is included in, in the tree, right? Which is great, and they can feel better about that. But um, if you're actually an auditor coming in, say, looking to invest in them and see if their fiat balances match their total balances, you really need your users to verify, you know, every single time that they put money in.
0: So does that happen on a per instance of audit basis? I'm trying to figure out, is this a continuous process that happens throughout the entire life cycle of one of these exchanges that you're talking about? Or is this a process that only happens you know, through quarterly or monthly or weekly or whatever reviews, and then there's a periodic like checkpoints?
1: Yeah, well, how we've imagined it actually could be something in real time. So that's one of the concepts that we're gonna we're gonna discuss in there, um, because as you know right now, you know uh, most audits are done quarterly. So this is an interesting aspect that does come out of uh, the cryptography that you could be doing audits in real time. And at provablysolvent.com, which is the domain that I own, and we put a website up there now where you can go and sign up to uh, get a copy of this paper when it's out. Um, I really see solvent.com being a place where people can report the results of their audits in real time. So a user can come in, they can say, hey, is Kraken provably solvent? Is Bitstamp provably solvent? And they can see the results of the machinery that is running the audits on on that website. And this doesn't expose sensitive financial data that the exchangers will be not wanting to expose? Well, that is a great question. And so this is actually where we're going uh, to propose using a class of cryptographic functions called accumulators and some, some classes of that called commitments to help increase the level of privacy. This was one of the uh, criticisms that have been made about the Merkle Tree approach, is that it does open up everything to everybody.
0: Okay, so let's take a step back here, and can we go through that one piece at a time and have you explain it to me so that the other 90% of my listeners will understand it? <laughs> so, I mean, so uh, so when, when you're talking about a Merkle Tree approach, essentially what you're saying is that all the transactions and all their relationships to each other, but not the identity of the relationships. Those are what—that's what's being used for the audit. Is that right?
1: Yeah, that is basically what gets published as a result of their database, right? Right. So yeah, you will see that information, but you know those specific users won't. Their identities won't be revealed. Now it would be great if you could keep even that information private, and. In terms of the liability verification that happens on the users, it'd be great if that could be potentially private too. And that's actually where we think the use of commitments will be great. Because what, uh, and maybe I could maybe later get into details of, of commitments, but in the paper you'll see that we, we visualize the use of commitments as a way to maintain greater par- privacy. But if you have to do an audit using commitments, um, you can actually uh, then unleash or un. Uh, retrieve this information. So if an auditor comes in and says, you know, bitstamp, are you solvent, like this, then you actually open these commitments and it'll show that information.
0: Okay. So just real quick, can you explain to me what a commitment is in the context you're using it?
1: Yeah. So it's um, it's, it's a cryptographic function that allows people to uh, exchange information without that information being known until a later point in time. So it's like taking uh, something, it's put like a secret. secret. Yeah, it's like a secret. It's like putting it in a box and then sending it to the other person And then, if anybody questions you at some later point in time, they can ask to open that commitment, but you've already deposited your information there, hence the reason why they call it commitment. So in this case, it could be something like a deposit. A customer could come in, they could say, here's a deposit of X amount of BTC or X amount of fiat, but instead of having broadcasting that to everybody, right? it could be contained within a commitment, and then later on, if you're doing an audit. Right? You would really use some type of sampling, and this is even how the big four accounting firms do it, is they actually uh, sample a certain number of people. And in this case, you could open up the boxes and see, okay, did this person and the exchange both agree on the amount of money that was transferred?
0: So uh, let's play it out on the Latin America side you know because yeah. that's where you guys do the majority of your business sure. so you know I mean on the one hand you've got kind of basket case governments and on the other hand you know you've got financial institutions not specifically in Latin America but all of the world yeah. that could desperately benefit and I think certainly their customers could benefit yeah. from a lot of transparency in that situation Do any of these solutions have any you know implications repercussions anything like that on any of these non cryptocurrency solutions
1: yeah, actually, um, if you look at where some of the ideas in, in, in the use of accumulators and authentication of databases, this is a subset of cryptography is going, there is a lot of financial applications. So some of these ideas could be directly ported to, say, hedge fund management, where you've had issues with Ponzi schemes and things like that. And it would be a way for, for, um, in, in, for you know, uh, investors to authenticate the activities of, you know, of, of the fund. Um, you know on, on the fiat side now on the, the cryptocurrency side um, You actually have to look at this two problems fiat and and cryptos um, on the cryptocurrency side um, You could actually use different techniques, uh, but the fiat side is what's what's difficult because when you use these functions You're able to easily sum up the total liabilities in the database And then at that point all you need to do is really look at one number Do they have this amount of USD or euros or not right? Whereas a typical audit company would have to come in, and they'd, they'd add up every single fiat deposit that ever occurred, they'd add up every single fiat withdrawal that ever occurred, they'd have to look at the hit, entire history of the trading database, right, for them to truly know that you have the money that is supposed to be there. So for accounting firms, this
0: actually is a huge cost and time savings if something like this were, I mean, like, again, you wouldn't need quite the level of, you know, behemothic infrastructure that you do in order to understand how the money is routing in the financial system like we do now.
1: Yeah, this could definitely be be applied there on on the fiat side for them. And we're, I mean, we're envisioning it mostly right now for, you know, in the the cryptocurrency ecosystem. But, uh, yeah, we just actually read a paper yesterday about hedge funds um, using this to um, create uh, basically uh, uh, your replicas of their databases, sending them to the investors, so the, data, the investors have this information. And then, if the hedge fund uh, risk tolerances or any other thing is put into question, they can unlock unlock this information. And they can see their investors, you know, we're doing what we what we, we said they do while maintaining their privacy.
0: So proofofsolvency.com. So I'm going to go there and by the time this is actually fully rolled out, what yeah. I'll see is a list of compli- exchanges that are following your process and their current status and then you'll be able to look into it a little bit. Or tell me, what, what is yeah. this website
1: going to look like when it's done? Yeah. Well, it's it's provablysolvent.com. Provablysolvent.com. Um, and right now, it's just a landing page uh, where you can you can sign up and get a copy of the white paper. Um, and right now, it's it's really kind of I, I envision it as being a place where people who want to be provably as a exchange or a wallet or or a fund a cryptocurrency fund um, can go there and report the results of their audits. So it's in self-reporting. Yeah, I mean, it, 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 once the, the idealization of this technology is, is built, sure, it could be self-reporting. Because really, you're going to have kind of this cloud-based audit system monitoring all the Bitcoin addresses that a certain business has tagged as their own. And that's a whole different thing to talk about in terms of tagging of addresses, which is an interesting idea. Um, but yeah, the, the, the audit software could be reading and running the solvency equations for a business in real time and reporting that results right there. Um that, that's kind of how we're thinking about it right
0: now. And this is better because the, what happened, for example, with Mount Gox is that they might have been insolvent a year ago. They might have been insolvent you know, at any point in their history, and if they might have just kind of carried it forward and it never caught up with them until now. We don't really know that, and lacking good audit options,
1: we don't have a way to. Exactly. And if you think about it like this, now that Mt. Gox opened up its database again, what's happening is people are posting print screens of their account balances in a public forum. So you really have people announcing their liabilities in a public forum so that then you can come and sum up those potential liabilities. Well, what we're proposing does a similar thing, where you're able to allow users to come in when they make a transaction with a business, announce that transaction cryptographically in a private manner that then gets assigned to that business as a liability in this case, um, and then broadcast that across a network, in a distributed network. So that then you have, instead of it just being a forum post, right, you have all the history of that is encrypted data in a blockchain, really. And so if you ever need to to call into question a transaction that happened two years ago or something like that, that user says, here's my commitment, we don't know what's in this commitment, but now I'll open it up and there's my user balance right there. It is a global record. <laughs> a Global ledger. <laughs> yeah, so that's the other aspect of, of how we're thinking of this. We actually have, or, or will talk about a a implementation of this, which is actually a distributed system too. Where where both the, the, the business's database, which in could be in the form of a Merkle tree in terms of how they're announcing this, is actually announced in a distributed fashion through the secure broadcast channel, which is which is the blockchain, right? And so everybody has a copy of this database going back through time through all state changes. Um, and so that's, again, another way where then the database couldn't, can't be manipulated later on. And if anybody suspects that, they can say, hey, on this day, they can start opening up the different copies of the database. Yeah. It, it's pretty technical and I've tried my best to do it. Our CTO has a PhD in cryptography. I'm the CEO. I've talked a lot about this. We've discussed a lot, but the the nitty-gritty of the technical details of how this is implemented, their business cases are there too. Like, for instance, how do you get users to report their liabilities to get a full snapshot of the true liability space, right? Users don't want to have to go through another step, right, to click and say, hey, here's my information, but we've come up with what we think could be a good incentive model to get people to do that. Sure, there'll be people who will do it just because they want... To have a better ecosystem, but then you have users who just want to do that. So, if with a reward system, um, that could be that could be facilitated. We talk about that.
0: So uh, we so now, do you want to talk about the token side of this? Um, how that might work? Well, okay. Yeah. So 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 yeah. b- before we get into that, let's, let's talk about this. You're pu- publishing this white paper, yeah. and from there, the next step is.
1: We don't know. I mean, this is so new. People, I mean, Maxwell and 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 they've only started applying this the last five, four to five weeks, right? And so people are trying to figure out all these these different problems right now. And really, we, what we really just hope with this white paper is one place to consolidate a lot of this information compare and contrast what people are doing. For instance, the Kraken audit. I think it's great, Kraken's awesome, but I can tell you three or four things in, from a process perspective. If they didn't do that, that audit is essentially worthless. right? Um, and then look at other people who have already implemented this. So bitquick.co has come has opened their API with a really cool proof of reserves function. And this is a little easier for wallets like say for instance blockchain.info, right? There's no need to have a proof of solvency there. You know that through that they that they don't have access to your points. But there's another interesting aspect to that. What if say, you know, as as blockchain.info goes to raise funds, they say we have 1.3 million wallets. Well, how do you know that that's actually true? Well, here's our database of all our walls. Well, again, now we're back at the database authentication issue. So we see this not just being a solvency uh, solution, potentially, for, say, exchanges, but a way to do more audits overall in general. And so we we actually have CryptoAudit.com and these other things. So we don't know where this is going. We just want to help the current people who are looking at this, which is Greg Maxwell, Peter Todd, Oliver Lalonde, and Zach Wilcox, Consolidate these ideas and add some of our own contributions and see if this is something that people can continue to push forward yeah.
0: So if somebody
1: you know has been listened to
0: this and understood it and is like man I'd really love to be involved with that project. What's the process? Where do they contact
1: you? Yeah, just go to provablysolvent.com solvent and they can put in their email and That will sign them up to, to get the the white paper uh, I, what I what I should do is just open up a message box there, too So if they want to send me a message too. but we just put the site up yesterday actually Um, Or you can email me at adam at coinforce.com. That's um, C-O-I-N 4-C-E dot com. So it's pronounced coinforce, but it's spelled 4-C-E dot com. You You can email me there too. Adam Stradling, thank you very much for your time. Okay, thanks.
2: Bitcoin Expo 2014, presented by the Bitcoin Alliance of Canada, is just a week away. The conference will feature the key players behind Ethereum, CA Vertex, Litecoin, Open Transactions, Sean's Outpost, Cointalk. Mastercoin, Dark Wallet, Crypto Kit, Blockchain.info, QuickBT, Bitcoin Magazine, and many others. With special guest Andreas Antonopoulos as the master of ceremonies. Bitcoin Expo 2014, Toronto, Canada, April 11th to 13th. For tickets, visit bitcoinexpo.ca. BitGive Foundation is a nonprofit charitable giving organization leveraging the power of the Bitcoin community to improve public health and the environment worldwide. Help us demonstrate the significant impact of Bitcoin in addressing these critical issues on a global scale. Support international giving in Bitcoin. Please visit our website at www.bitgivefoundation.org. That's www.bitgivefoundation.org.
0: Hi everybody. My name is Adam B. Levine. I'm the editor in chief of the Let's Talk Bitcoin show, which is a twice weekly show about the ideas, people, and projects building the digital economy and the future of money, as I like to say. Um, we've heard some interesting talk about uh, the 2.0 side of things, and this panel really, I think, is, is, is what it's all about is the 2.0 side of things. So we have some great panelists up here representing three projects that are similar in a lot of ways, but very different also. Vitalik Buterin, everybody's going to introduce themselves. Vitalik Buterin is uh, the founder of Ethereum and has been in the space for quite a while. Can you tell us your story of kind of getting in?
3: Yeah, so first time I joined the Bitcoin community was in uh, 2011, so I... So, I know there's this really cool currency on the internet. How do I get into it? And so I found a guy on the forums. His name was Kiba. He was trying to set up this Bitcoin blog. And he was paying people five Bitcoins an article, which was four dollars back then. And that's what I did. First job I ever had. Average salary about a dollar fifty cents an hour. Earned twenty Bitcoins, spent eight and a half of them on a t-shirt. So eventually, eventually the guy's money ran out, and so I managed to salvage the operation for a while by coming up with this interesting new business model where I would write two articles a week, then I would... Uh, Put it, put up the first paragraph of each one on, on a forum, and it was a Bitcoin address, and it would say, these articles are held for ransom. If the community dumps 4.5 BTC into this address, then I will release, release the rest of the articles. And it actually worked. It actually, it actually paid, paid me maybe something like $6 an hour for about two months. So then from there I moved on to Bitcoin Magazine, uh, started doing development uh, nine months ago, uh, quit university to go Bitcoin full time, traveled around the world to US, uh, Spain, Amsterdam, Israel, and then got really interested in this whole Bitcoin 2.0 space, and that's basically where Ethereum came out of.
0: And that uh, one of those articles was actually the first Bitcoin transaction that I made was actually trying to get one of those articles. I don't remember what one it was, but getting one to try to release from ransom. So, you know, you had a huge impact on me choosing to get into Bitcoin media. Uh, David Johnston comes from more of an entrepreneurial background, but has really jumped into the space and has probably more projects individually than me and certainly just about everybody else in the space. uh, Why Bitcoin? Why this technology?
4: Um, So when I think about new trends, I really look at the fundamentals And in 2012, when I first found out about Bitcoin, it really captured me from an economic perspective. Like, I like the idea of a currency that can't artificially be debased. And so that struck a chord with me really early on, but quickly you go through that Bitcoin newbie learning curve where you realize it's not just a currency, it's this vast payment network that lets me send transactions across the network. And then you realize it's also the technology underneath, the blockchain technology, is really where the exciting stuff is. And then you realize we can use this technology and apply it to other areas. And that was sort of the light bulb moment for me. So got heavy involved in Bitcoin in 2012, started the Bit Angels with Sam Yilmaz, uh, Michael Turpin, and others at the San Jose conference last year in 2013. Now I've got about 400 members for the Bit Angels, and we've tried to invest in all sorts of different applications. But what's really captured me the last six or nine months has been these decentralized applications ended up writing the white paper uh, and now i've got to focus entirely on decentralized applications so i ended up investing early on in mastercoin and was asked to be one of the volunteer board of directors for the mastercoin foundation and so that's how i've gotten really heavily into it
0: how long did it take you to go from being interested primarily for the appreciation of the price of the unit and being more interested in the ecosystem was there a gap there
4: It was a pretty quick transition, probably two, three weeks of nerdy down on this. So you just got it. Yeah. Interesting. Well, you go read the white paper, you go up the learning curve, and after talking with a lot of smart people, you wrap your head around it.
0: Thank you. Uh, Brian Snyder is, you know, Brian Snyder's here representing Next, and Next is kind of an interesting beast that I've been watching for the last, uh, I guess, two or three months, Uh, I like to call it kind of like a uh, beast that has no head, that has a thousand arms, so it's really difficult to organize, but if you ever could get it organized, then it probably has a lot of ability, you know, uh, uh, in there. So you've described yourself to me as an ambassador who's actually relatively new to Bitcoin. Can
5: you kind of describe your journey? My journey is a long journey to get here. I graduated from Washington State University in 2004, and in between that time and now, I've seen credit card accounts get hacked. I've seen actual identities get hacked. And it's come to the realization that the central networks are not being secured adequately to protect people's interests, whether it's money or their identification or even their ability to transact money. And so... It's an honor to be here and to be an ambassador for NXT or Next. And I was asked a couple times last night if I was the creator of, (laughs) and no, I am not BC Next or Satoshi Nakamoto, but we all are. So we've
0: heard this, all these questions are basically for everyone, one after the other. Uh, We've heard prior panelists kind of flatly say that now is not really the time for 2.0 development and that we should be more focused on, you know, kind of uh, applications that seem to interface cryptocurrency to legacy currencies like the dollar or the yen or things like that. And then on the other hand, I think that the applications that you're working with kind of are more focused around applications that are cryptography to cryptography and don't necessarily interface so much with the space. Is, is that fair to say? And what do you think about the idea that we should be waiting to develop these 2.0 applications until Bitcoin is ready?
3: I mean, I, th- I personally think point, the 2.0 stuff is really by, by far the most interesting part of the... Of, of the cryptocurrency scene in general, I mean, okay, you can send money instantly from A to B. Congrats, you know. There's a whole bunch of services that let you do that in China. It's sure Bitcoin's an impro- Bitcoin is an improvement in a lot of ways, but it really, but that by itself isn't really enough. I don't think enough of an improvement to re- to really get the entire world excited and get the entire world to switch over onto the onto the cryptographic ecosystem. I think the reason why people want a crypto, cryptocurrencies and, and people want crypto protocols is precisely because of some of these 2.0 smart contracts and decentralized incentivized protocol ideas. Like, that's the sort of thing that you absolutely cannot do with traditional finance, no matter how hard you try.
4: Right, so I think a good analogy is the early days of the Internet, right? Early days of the Internet... Email was the killer app. All of a sudden, I can instantly send a message to anybody on earth. It hardly costs anything, which is a great analogy to Bitcoin and now being able to send money. But, you know, just sort of only focusing on email doesn't make sense for mass adoption. What got people excited about the Internet was now there are all these different uses and websites that popped up that were relevant to them. And so I think as we see more and more projects using the underlying Bitcoin technology that are doing things other than payment and other than currency, now I care, right? As an end user, I'm maybe not a merchant and so I don't see all the advantages or I don't buy a lot of stuff online. But if I use Dropbox today and you told me that there was an alternative version that was 10 times less than cost, all of a sudden I have a reason to adopt this new technology and use it. And I may not even understand that I'm using that technology, but I'll be leveraging those same protocols in order to accomplish that. That's so why I keep saying, and I really believe this in five or six years, I think you'll have a billion people using Bitcoin and most of them won't realize they're using it any more than most people consciously think of the fact that they are using HTTP when they go onto their social media or go onto a search engine.
5: The recent centralized exchange failures highlight the need for cryptocurrency 2.0 systems, i.e. decentralized exchanges to allow the cryptographic community to trade uh, in a trustless fashion to where the transactions are signed locally and then sent through a set of automated transactions that represent a gateway. And so these gateways can exist on top of the next asset exchange and can provide a totally decentralized method for trading cryptographic pairs. So... uh
0: Founders and fundraising. Again, everybody here is kind of on uh, different places within the time frame, and everybody has a different story. Let's start with uh, Brian about NXT. Can you tell us about what you think about founders? You know, are founders an advantage, or are they a disadvantage? Is fundraising an advantage, or is it a disadvantage?
5: So BC Next... collected 21 bitcoins to generate the uh, genesis block for next and that genesis block created 1 billion nxt which is a fixed amount there will be no more than that it's similar to the 21 million number for bitcoin and as far as funding and founders go I guess what I mean is... It's it's said by the creator of Next that a world with the money can never be perfect. And so some people will always have misgivings about any system. There will always be inequalities in any system. And in the initial bootstrapping phases of a cryptocurrency ecosystem, there must be people who have stake, who have uh, an incentive to... Continue the network success and to continue the security of the network. Do you view that uh, 21 Bitcoin that was raised as a fundraising or was it something else? I suppose you could call it a fundraiser. Okay.
4: So I think what we're seeing is different best practices emerge here. People have certain expectations based on how Bitcoin has been built that whatever system you choose, it's going to be transparent, people are going to be able to participate on the process on an equal basis, Um, and that it'll be based on open source, and you you have these best practice expectations, and I think if you go along those and you make a best effort with your protocol and the way that you issue your tokens for these applications – then the community will get on board if you do things like try to keep things proprietary, or you're not transparent about the process, or people aren't able to participate on an equal and fair basis, then there's a lot more skepticism. And I, th- I think those best practices are really starting to emerge.
3: Yeah, I like definitely yeah, fair, fairness and this whole issue of uh, does the protocol privilege certain people is something that, we, that people talk about quite a lot. I think there's one of the problems here is that there definitely are a lot of people in some of the earlier Bitcoin community, whether it 's the more, the more sort of uh, market libertarian or, or open source culture or a combination of both, is that a there 's a lot of, a lot of emphasis in those kinds of schools on, on systems that are sort of technically fair that don 't sort of explicitly privilege a specific people or specific institutions but one but more from an entrepreneurial standpoint, the thing that you need to understand is that really Bitcoin, it's, Bitcoin itself is not is not really all that egalitarian. Like, sure, there's no, nothing in the Bitcoin code that says that says like Satoshi Nakamoto and Hal Finney are entitled to a pre-mine of thirty thousand BTC. But the reality is, you know, no. I, for example, never had a ch- chance to even do anything with Bitcoin in 2009 or 2010. I've never even heard of it. So it's not really a matter of uh, it's, it's not really a, a matter of whether the system is sort of technically fair. It's more it's more a matter of of whether it's sort of, whether it's actually fair. Whether the the process is why do we distribute it. Whether it's designed into, in. In such a way that anyone can participate. Like what the what the uh, the distribution of the currency supply is. Obviously, if like one one particular entity has forty percent of it, that's a bad thing. Also, once again, is there transparency? So and uh, a lot of these different fundraising methods. I would, like David actually made this point to me a few months ago. Are even more fair than just something that's purely mining based. Because, you know, if, you're a, if you have something like Bitcoin and it's a purely mining-based currency, in order to mine it now, you know, you, you still need money. You, st- you need money to buy an ASIC, and, or you need $5 million of capital to make an ASIC company. I mean, that's where the real money is, right? So, whereas if you have something like a fundraiser, then anyone who has any money can participate. So it's a matter of coming up with a mechanism where lots of different diverse constituencies can participate in different ways.
4: Right, and I think that's the other best practice emerging is if you're not doing something that requires hashing power, then why only reward miners? So we are now having applications that don't necessarily need hashing power that maybe are built on Ethereum or on top of Bitcoin. Um, And what they need to do is incentivize other user groups. So I and Vitalik talked about this early on, is you have developers that you need to incentivize to add to the open source code. You have people you want to participate in the crowd sale, um, when you initially distribute the tokens that want to support this financially. And I think ought to be the largest pool is whatever user behavior you need uh, in order for this system to work, that ought to be what you reward in the biggest way. And so let's take a particular example. Storage won the recent hackathon in Austin, did a, put up a million dollars at Angels for the hackathon there. They took first place. And it's a system that rewards people for adding storage, computer storage, to a cloud and that's the majority of how their tokens will be distributed for everybody setting up these nodes that compensate people and people who are competing to provide this storage to the network but you also have a pool for developers that contribute to the open source and you also have a pool for the initial crowd sale and so that's sort of the different constituents that you were talking about, that's what we really see emerging
0: Well so let's talk about use cases I mean these 2.0 technologies are you know sort of (laughs) <laughs> it's a bit of an ethereal concept, no pun intended. Uh, so what are some early use cases that you see coming out on your platform?
3: Okay. Um, one thing that people are a lot of, are very excited about is this a decentralized Dropbox idea. So, you know, you have these systems where if you have a 100-gigabyte file, you can upload it, they store it for you. But why can't that, actu- that be a cloud, as in an actual decentralized cloud? So, you know, you upload a file... Anyone can download it, and then there's a contract which automatically pay, pays out money to, or, or whatever kind of tokens to whoever manages to submit a cryptographic proof that they still have the file. Like the, it, the reason why it's exciting is, you know, as uh, we said at the last uh, Texas conference, Dropbox has a markup of something like 100x. So if you can drop that down even 10x, you know, potentially got a ma- got a massive improvement there. And on the seller side, you can earn money by renting out your hard drive. That's pa- that's a powerful message.
4: The cool thing is that people have been working on this for a while. Uh, One of my favorite projects in that space is Made Safe, is doing the back end for what storage is doing on the front end. And they've thought through a lot of those hard problems around how do you fully decentralize storage, encrypt it end-to-end, make it so there's no central point of failure. So, yeah, I think projects like that are going to be a really easy to understand use case for most people because people are starting to get used to the idea of the share economy. They're used to Airbnb and be able to earn extra income by the renting out their house or now there are all these car sharing apps that let people earn extra income doing that. Why not rent out extra storage space sitting on a 3 terabyte hard drive sitting on your desk? And so I think it's sort of in a natural extension of that that people will understand and really be able to use every day.
5: One of the interesting use cases of NXT is fraud prevention with regular, for example, the example being used here is the exchange DGEX, which is run by Graviton of the NXT community, and in a situation where a fraudulent request was made from an account, uh, the administrator, Gravitron, was able to contact the initial funding owner, uh, the real owner of the account, and seek the authentication token from inside the NXT account. And so, Given that the request was made from some other account completely, the request to provide the token was not able to be completed, and so the withdrawal was not processed. So what is it about the NXT that allowed that to happen where it wouldn't in Bitcoin? There's uh, within the NXT client a uh, token uh, authentication feature where you can plug in a website, and uh, your, your NXT account number, and it feeds out a, uh, a cryptographic hash that can only be unlocked by the other person. So.
2: This is Chris Joseph bringing you news on Next, the first true second-generation cryptocurrency for April 5th, 2014. It had to happen eventually. NEXT features a coin supply of 1 billion indivisible coins, and at the time of its creation, nobody was concerned about this indivisibility because the supply was so large. But with the development of the decentralized asset exchange, questions have arisen. How can we trade other divisible assets against NEXT if NEXT is indivisible? This week marks the debut of what we're calling the Quant, the NEXT equivalent of the Bitcoin Satoshi. A new version of the NEXT software running only on the testnet adds divisibility for NEXT up to 8 decimal places which matches most other cryptos the goal is to make it easy to trade next against other currencies on the asset exchange once this new coin divisibility feature has been fully tested it will be deployed on the production next network for more general information on next head to nextcrypto.org or mynxt.org and stay tuned for more news on next in the next let's talk bitcoin broadcast
0: so we're kind of going through this in a little bit of a backwards way. I'd like each of you to take, a,
5: take just a minute or two to explain your project. And uh, Brian, let's start with you again. Okay, so NXT is a 100% proof-of-stake cryptocurrency that operates on its own blockchain. And uh, one of the features that is being developed right now is called the Next Asset Exchange. And the Next Asset Exchange, once released on the mainnet, once it's all tested and fully debugged, will allow gateways to build on top of the asset exchange to allow at this point there's been a proof of use case of a fully automated multi signature cryptocurrency gateway that has transferred Dogecoin into the next asset exchange running on testnet and transferred it back out of the next asset exchange back into the, the real world Doge wallet. So that type of
0: Follow up on that. so so uh so what you're saying is that somebody transferred doge into nxt where it was represented by nxt by an nxt asset yes for doge yes and then somebody traded it back out and so in that way people were able to trade doge on an entirely decentralized peer-to-peer exchange
5: yes okay that's different so, so as a just a proof of use case that has has been demonstrated <laughs> so far
4: So the case with MasterCoin and the Master Protocol is a similar use case but on top of the Bitcoin cryptographic ledger. And so with Master Protocol, and Master is just an acronym for metadata archived by standard transaction embedding records, and that's exactly what it does. It's embedding records in the Bitcoin ledger using these standard transaction types, and you're interpreting that metadata to say, oh, That's not a regular Bitcoin transaction. That's a Dogecoin token or a Purecoin token or one of the user currencies that people have created using master protocol um, that could represent sort of any different type of project. For instance, uh, Maidstay for storage, if they issue their user currencies on top of the master protocol, all the master protocol wallets will be able to recognize that transaction as a particular token and somebody's sending that from one place to another. And so... That's really at the heart is the decentralized exchange that's recently been launched, and the next thing is the user currencies, and it's all on top of Bitcoin. So the interesting thing that that creates is if Bitcoin is successful as a general cryptographic ledger, we'll see more and more assets, more and more tokens built on top of the ledger, really adding an enormous amount of value to Bitcoin itself, expanding Bitcoin from today a currency and a payment network to a secure cryptographic ledger. And that really makes it a lot more like the internet than like email. So it'll be interesting to see how that evolves. Yeah,
3: Yeah, it's a good thing that the analogy between the internet and email brought up because Mm -hmm. one of the ways that I like explaining Ethereum is actually talking about specifically the internet. So if you look at the Internet back in the 1990s, you know, we had this language called HTML. You know, it started off by let's have text web pages, and then HTML came out with things like specific features, things like paragraphs, underlining, bold. At some point, you know, we decided, you know, oh, hey, static content isn't good enough. People want to be able to do, do forms. So HTML came up with a specific feature that allowed, that allowed you to do forms inside of HTML. You could f- fill out forms, you could submit them, and they'll go straight to the server and so forth. So with Ethereum, then, however, in two thousand, what we or around two thousand, Brendan Eich came out with this programming language called JavaScript, and the idea is is that instead of having this Internet protocol suite with dozens and dozens of features on top of it, let's just have the inter- an Internet the Internet or, or the web with the programming language built in, so you can build whatever features you want on top. And you know, since then, we've seen. Uh, People have built Gmail on top of JavaScript. People have built F- Facebook on top of JavaScript. People have built, built Bitcoin wallets on top of JavaScript. All these applications that Brent and I never even thought of are possible just because he created this protocol that contained this universal programming language that allows you to do everything. So Ethereum basically takes that exact same idea and brings it to the world of cryptocurrency. So it's this sort of generalized, con, generalized contract network where you can encode any kind of arbitrary rules, any, any arbitrary transaction types you want, just any financial contract, decentralized storage, make your own currency, just by defining exactly what they are in, in, in the programming language and putting it on the blockchain.
0: So why not use Bitcoin? And to... <laughs> David, why use Bitcoin? What are the advantages? What are the disadvantages? And
3: Vitalik, let's start with you. Okay. Um, so there's two different ways uh, we could have used Bitcoin. So one way is, okay, let's take Bitcoin as, it's, as it stands today and let's try and make slight modifications to it. The thing is, is that Bitcoin does have a built-in scripting language, but it's very limited. So one of the big limitations, for example, is that transactions they don't really have state. So a transaction can be spent or it can be unspent. There's there's no way to make, to use that to make some kind of like complicated five-step contract, right? Or like five-step financial contract, or even like a subcurrency that has as much state as you want. So the other approach is to do something like covered Coin covered coins or counterparty or any of these other ones and MasterCoin and say, let's store, let's use the Bitcoin blockchain as a data layer. So it's a good approach. In fact, one fun fact is that the original Ethereum white paper back around November 27th actually had the Ethereum protocol running on top of Primecoin. I think the biggest reason to do it independently is just a matter of scalability. So there are a lot of uh, so with some of these protocols if you do it on the Bitcoin blockchain in order to figure out what the current state of the system is you have to process every single transaction whereas if you do it on your own network then you have, you could actually use mechanisms like merkle trees and allow people to, and allow various different kinds of like caching, caching and optimization to happen so that you can actually so you can have secure white clients that know exactly what, what just a particular part of the state that they care about so you want to reinvent the wheel? Yes, we want to, reinv- we wants to reinvent the wheel and make it better. Okay.
4: Well, and I think that analogy of programming languages is a really good one, and one I often use. People ask me, well, aren't you competitors with this or this project? And I try to remind people that these are all open-source projects and that whatever best practices emerge everyone else will copy. That's how open source works, that's how it should work. And so I think of these more as programming languages that have different strengths and have different weaknesses. For the particular features of the master protocol, we wanted to build on top of the largest, most secure cryptographic ledger, and today, that's Bitcoin. Master protocol doesn't have to forever stay only on Bitcoin. There's already been discussion around the devs about partnering with Ethereum to build on top of their platform partnering with MadeSafe to build on top of their platform. So I think this will exist. It's sort of like asking, are you only going to do this app for iPhone? No. I'll do it for Android too. Maybe I'll do it for other platforms. There's no reason we can't leverage sort of all those capabilities based on the different platforms that get built. And so, but again for the particular features of the master protocol, they were straightforward enough. Decentralized exchange of tokens, defining assets, that the fastest and clearest path to success was to do this on top of the bitcoin ledger in a way that fits into their existing architecture and hey if ethereum gives us awesome advanced features wonderful that's that's great we will you know make sure our wallet and everything integrates with them and can take advantage of those features as those roll out but there's sort of this race to do the decentralized exchange. And one of the ways we got there very quickly was by using an existing ledger and an existing blockchain.
0: Well, let me follow up with that real quickly. You know, you're doing a decentralized exchange, and I've been playing around with some of the Bitcoin-based decentralized exchanges, and I noticed that while a 10-minute blockchain, you know, 10-minute block time is really, really fast when you compare it to a wire transfer, Mm -hmm. when you compare it to trying to trade on a trading platform, it's incredibly slow. Sure. So, I mean, like... Do you think that's a problem for Bitcoin in the medium term?
4: Not necessarily. Bitcoin is never or not in the near term going to be a high frequency trading platform. It's not designed that way. It's meant as a cryptographic ledger. And so I think gentlemen mentioned earlier, best way I would do that today is I would do it off-chain and every periodic amount of time, 10 minutes, 20 minutes, whatever, I would merge those records into the blockchain and now even if my high frequency trading fails I've got the records as of 10 minutes ago Mm -hmm. that I know are stored in the secure cryptographic ledger and so I think it makes sense more to do something like open transactions or another thing that's meant to act at a very fast pace and do that off chain and then merge those records. Are
0: these solutions um, are these solutions what's what I'm looking for here? Um, Do they require us to trust you? So the best that you can offer
4: off-chain today is a federated model. So if you look at OT as an example, you create a pool of servers, and it would be very, very difficult to take over all of those servers in order to fake a transaction. So they have a high level of security, but I would still want to merge into the ledger, to get an even better level of security. What I'd really like to see is somebody take these federated systems for OT and other systems and figure out a way to fully decentralize them. I think that's going to come. I think it's going to require identification protocols. It's going to require reputation protocols. It's going to need other elements before you can fully do that process.
5: I think it's interesting that the Java technology being referenced as the enabler of the Internet applies directly to the coding of the NXT ecosystem because NXT core is coded in Java as opposed to Bitcoin, which is coded in C. And in addition, Bitcoin has, I'm sure as everyone knows, a ten-minute blockchain generation time, whereas NXT has a one-minute blockchain generation time. and. In addition, the average cost of a Bitcoin transaction right now is $32, approximately. And that is can be found on blockchain.info and is a result of the competitive uh, securing of the Bitcoin network via all of these ASICs and via proof of work. And so... NXT provides a significant energy saving advantage over the long term as well as a faster block generation time. So how does it accomplish that? Every single node on the network has to agree every single minute which node will process the next will will process the next block. So it's another way to find consensus. Correct. Okay. Yeah, proof of stake.
0: And how long has um, how long has NXT actually been working in practice?
5: Uh, NXT has been in, in existence for about four months now. Four months. Proof of stake was just thought of probably six months ago. Huh. Interesting. Uh, so, you know. The legal landscape is interesting.
0: These are all global projects, and, again, there are differing approaches to kind of dealing with this. So let's start with you, Brian. You know, change the paradigm, conform to the paradigm, or completely avoid
5: the paradigm, and how? NXT is a completely decentralized network. There are no leaders, and at the core, it cannot be stopped just like Bitcoin cannot be be stopped the blockchain will continue to roll on, will continue to generate new blocks as long as there is incentive to the, the members of the network.
0: So do you have any plans to interface with regulators or has that even been discussed within it or is well, this just outside?
5: Well, the, the core provides extensibility to other programmers. So other programmers can build gateways as I described onto the next asset exchange and so those gateway providers would fully integrate with the regulations, know your customer uh, anti-money laundering laws, etc. and so at the core the system will run no matter what and is not beholden to regulation the provider's that build on top of the core can choose to come into compliance where they need to come into compliance or choose not to.
4: Yeah, I think that's the right answer. Bitcoin has given us a really good example of how to operate these type of projects. Bitcoin is an open source tool. It's global, and it's not trying to do compliance on a global level with the open source. It's just an open source tool set And any operator can take that Bitcoin protocol and use it in their particular jurisdiction to run an exchange, run a business. And it's up to the operator in that jurisdiction to comply with their local regulations. And so that's part of why Bitcoin has been so successful. Um, You can see people have taken the Bitcoin protocol and you build an exchange in China different than you build an exchange in the United States different than you build an exchange in Europe. And so it's given people that flexibility to do compliance in their local jurisdiction, but have access to this open source platform that give them all the tools they need. And so I think that's really important. I talk a lot about that idea of not instead of trying to do global compliance, which is really tough as a startup and as a new project, but doing local compliance and just leaving the top level as an open source protocol. Um, When it comes to people issuing the tokens, the frame I like to think about is, imagine I wanted to develop a new video game. And I went on to a website and said, hey, everybody that wants to support this new video game can send me $10. And I will give you the first password to this new video game. All the people that support it will get this new password. I collect the money, I do the work. Six months later, I release the video game, and all the people that gave me my... Uh, participated in my initial crowd sale of the video game, get access. That's a really good frame to think about this, because when people offer tokens, they are literally giving them all their participants a private key, which is the same as a password. Right? They're getting a password that accesses this particular application. And people associate a value with that password because now anybody with that password can access this new application. But I think from a framework um, on the regulatory side, that's how I think about this, is it is very it is a crowd sale. It's very much um, sort of a crowd activity that's participating in accessing these applications because there's such a broad uh, array of things that people will use this for.
3: Yeah, well, one of the problems, I think, is that even though we might think that all we're, all we're doing is just a pre-selling tokens, so you do have to keep in mind that the regulators might uh, might think, you think in a different way, especially if... You go, you go around and pro, and promote it as uh, a, a massive investment opportunity. Yeah. So uh, there, there definitely is is room for uh, uh, for compli- compliance of some kind, and it's uh, it's not it's not as much of a problem in Bic- with Bitcoin because it's a completely an- completely anonymous project. But on the other hand, if you uh, go with some kind of fundraising ap- fundraising approach, then or you know you do have. It is something that you do have to think about that is that is one of the costs that come that come with with the benefits so like un, unless it's pos- possible to gain the, the benefits benefits of that paradigm while we'll still keeping the whole thing uh, completely decentralized with no central parties whatsoever but that's I think a challenge that's still
4: So anybody interested in this area I'd encourage you to check out coda is the consortium of decentralized applications. This includes Mm -hmm. MasterCoin, colored coins, BitShares, Ethereum, open transactions. We're all getting together, people in these Bitcoin 2.0 areas and saying, let's pool our resources to do legal work, do regulatory work and Mm -hmm. figure out what are the goes and what are the no-goes in this area so we can all be smart. We want to do this in an intelligent way that complies with all the jurisdictions.
0: Sure. So we have five minutes left. Uh, We didn't get through all my questions. I'm sorry we're not going to have time to take questions from the audience. I want to get uh, kind of broad and visionary here for a second and talk about what this ecosystem looks like five years out or two years out if you succeed with what you're attempting to do. What does the world look like? Let's start with you, Vitalik.
3: Yeah, I mean, so... Well, with, with Ethereum, we're not—we're not real. I think in the long term, you know, we don't even need to necessarily know all that much about us. You know, people don't don't go around uh, talking all that much about something like TCP/IP, or people people talk about the applications on top of it. So that's yeah. You know, like in the long in the long term, you know, people are not necessarily going to be writing contracts. You know, even even in our pi- in our Python code, which, which, to be fair, is much easier to use than you know, the fourth scripting language that comes with Bitcoin. Like, in the long term, people are going to be using apps, and their, jo- and their job is to create, a, create a, mecha- a way that allows you to sort of take all this Ethereum, fun- all this smart contract functionality, package it up into tools which are simultaneously user-friendly, easy to use, but also, in the background, have all of the security assurances that Decentralized Consensus technology provides. So, you know, it'll, it'll basically look just like your iPhone, except you have the reassurance that it's actually secure on the, on the back end.
4: So I'll take this opportunity to coin Johnston's law. Johnston's law is as follows. Everything that can be decentralized will be decentralized. That's the vision here. I look at this as the entire tech stack, and we're still at the early days where we're decentralizing data, and storage and bandwidth. But once we have those elements in the next few months, we can build more and more advanced protocols and decentralized systems on top of those basic elements. So I think we can take all the existing hierarchy or centralized systems and one by one decentralize them using this type of technology. I'm not saying it's a model that applies to everything, but those things that can be decentralized, that it makes economic sense, They will be, I think, over the coming years.
0: Okay, you still have 60 seconds on your answer, so I actually want to press you with a further question. Um, What do you think the single most exciting project is that you are looking at that is on the 2.0 use case side? Real, you know, 50 seconds.
4: Number one, MadeSafe. Number two, Ethereum. Number three, OpenGarden. That is my compute. MadeSafe is my storage. And Open Garden is my mesh network that gives me decentralized bandwidth.
0: And the thing that ties these together is tokens.
4: Tokens tie it together because it lets us monetize the use of these applications without an arbitrary fee or profit margin built in. And so we're working with Open Garden to create a white paper that brings together how you tokenize their system and incentivize people to share the internet. Ethereum's doing a great job with how do we incentivize scripting and consensus around that. The Madesafe guys I think have done an incredible job. And I'll put it this way. I got on a plane and I went to Scotland to meet all their developers. And I was really, really impressed. I think they'll talk more publicly about what they're doing in April at the New York conference. But yeah, those are the three things that I'm really excited
5: about. Thank you, David. Okay, NXT has the last 90. So the NXT network in, in the future will have a fully operational asset exchange and on that asset exchange uh, will be the gateways I described previously. And so these gateways could operate in any country. They could be uh, fully regulated or they could be running uh, anonymity protocol like the, uh, the zero cash protocol from John, Johns Hopkins, Hopkins University and so these are applications that are being worked on right now. And additional uses of the, the next decentralized cryptocurrency ecosystem is the uh, reanimation of dead capital that <clears throat> is not able to be titled or sold because people don't have access to the financial services and it's largely due to the excessive costs of old analog-style banking. Can you expand on that a little bit in 27 seconds? Uh, I can try. So most of the world has not experienced the Internet yet at this point. Even though the Internet's 25 years old, it still needs to be secured, and most of the world still has not experienced the benefits of it. So as we go forward, decentralized applications will provide the avenue to be able to deliver safe and secure solutions to the rest of the world. Gentlemen, thank you for your time. Thank you.
0: Thanks for listening to Episode 98 of Let's Talk Bitcoin. This episode was produced by Adam B. Levine and Crystal Levine. Content was provided by Adam Stradling, Vitalik Buterin, David Johnston, Brian Snyder, and Adam B. Levine. Music for this episode was provided by Jared Rubens and General Fuzz. Any questions or comments, email adam at letstalkbitcoin.com. Have a good one.